it makes sense that there's different stages and different ways that that it can show up and turn into something larger and affect your life. Yeah. Absolutely. The easiest way to explain the difference between stress and anxiety is it internal versus external. So stress is usually an external set of stimuli that's coming at you. Anxiety is an internal state and it's a threat response system that we have, which is usually it's linked to our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions, how we feel about something, how we think about something that somebody has either said or done to us, and then it carries on. So you can maintain the stress experience and that comes out as anxiety. Welcome to the podcast, Bobby. I am happy to have you on. I know we connected a few months ago and been looking forward to it in anticipation of you coming. And I want to start actually with a question that I found on your, on your page, on your website for mindful counseling, which is, how are you really? Which I love that question and not enough people ask or listen to the answer. So how are you really? I know the go-to is always, I'm fine, I'm fine. But I remember fine is usually just the cover up. What is, did you ever see the, the Italian job? I did. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did. Fine. Freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional is really what fine means. Um, how am I really? Today, I'm, I'm glad it's Friday. I'm relieved. That's how I am today. I'm relieved that we're at the end of the week. Yeah. Yeah. Ditto. Do you try to, is it easier for people to say how they really are if they think of a word? Like you said, relieved. Do you typically start with just thinking of, of one word? Well, actually in my practice, it, we use a lot of different words. I, of course, a lot of people come in saying the, the generics, and then we have a word wheel that we use, which is the Gottman's word wheel that gives you other uh, ways of describing. So yes, I do try to expand my vocabulary and use different words because different words evoke different responses from other people. And so, you know, gauging that also, it depends on how much I'm willing to exchange with another person, you know, how much you really feel. Sometimes it's fine. It's just like a, oh, okay, let's just go ahead and get to the conversation kind of thing. But in the yeah. counseling room, some people, they're not fine. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. I So I know that I'm going to go off topic for just a minute here. But when you say that in the in the counseling session and the space that you create, you know, there's that safety and that you're allowed to it's almost a place to push, right? To get somebody to open up. Do you recommend that that happens in the workplace where if you notice that your colleagues are constantly saying, you know, no, I'm fine. It's whatever. You know, do you, do you push it or is, would that not be recommended? I think it just depends on several factors. First, who are you in relationship to that person? Are you coworkers? Are you a supervisor? Are you a manager? What's your role? And then there's also how much responsibility do you take for somebody else's well-being? You know, what is that position like? So it, it should be a give and take. Is the person receptive to it? Is that their personality? Is, you know, there's more things to consider. And work may not be considered a safe place 
at that moment to emote, you know? So I think there's more than just one answer. In the counseling room, of course, that's where you come. And that's, it's set up to, this is where you sit and you tell me all your stuff. But sometimes workplaces and spaces is where the stress takes place, but it may not be the place where the stress is resolved. Yeah, no, that's good advice. And well, I'm excited to dig in and hear more about all the work that you're doing around fatigue, preventing burnout, compassion fatigue, you know, and, you know, it's serious, it's costly for, for companies, not only companies, but for individuals as well. Burnout right. affects our health, not only mentally, but physically. So what advice have you learned to give either companies or individuals? Okay. There's a lot, right? So, yeah. I mean, that's... <laughs> There, there are many layers to that. So I also, just like a quick plug, I did write a CEU that is being published on Behavioral Live about this specifically. And you don't just end up or show up at burnout. It is a process and it's a continuum, you know, and at the beginning stages, you experience stress, but everybody experiences stress. Life is stress. Stress then goes into anxiety. Anxiety then goes into fatigue. Fatigue has that component of compassion fatigue, and then you end up at burnout. So it is a continuum process that costs everybody. But at the same time, you you know the people who own the companies. I'm not talking about the big major ones. I'm talking about the smaller business owners. Their pressures and their fatigues and their anxieties are very specific. And then you also have the therapist, the person that's actually working with the client. So everybody, there's enough stress to go around for sure for days. We can, you know, talk about that and like what exactly is stress. And then it moves into fatigue and, or excuse me, anxiety. And if you don't mind, I can like speak a little bit about the differences between stress and anxiety, because I see a lot of that in my counseling room. And it's also based, it's based around the threats, right? So when we go out into the world, we have lots of stressors or pressures, instances, people, words, activities, actions that are coming around us. But stress can be put into different categories as well. It can be episodic stress, acute episodic, acute, and then chronic stress. So it depends on what stresses that you are experiencing. But usually stress, when the moment is over, that should dissipate. It should go away. It turns into anxiety when you can't resolve it. It's that, that inner thought process, process that maintains a stress that is not physically in front of you. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it, it does. It's, it's, you're, it's interesting. I actually was going on a drive yesterday with my daughter and she brought up a situation that happened a couple of years ago and she opened up about the fact that she almost gave up dance and dance is her therapy and her passion. And she was talking about the difference between being with a coach who didn't give reinforcement and only, you know, spoke about pushing yourself, pushing yourself, but never relieved any of the stress, you know, and so she held it in and that kept her up, you know, exercising at night and doing everything to really take away that joy of what she was doing. Fast forward that to now where she's on a hip hop team, which is more, you know, free flow. It's show up as you are. 
you know, you get critiqued and, you know, there's stresses in it, but there's not added anxiety on top of it that's continual. So I guess to answer your question, yes, I, I think it makes sense that there's different stages and different ways that, that it can show up and turn into something larger and affect your life. Yeah. Absolutely. The easiest way to explain the difference between stress and anxiety is it internal versus external. So stress is usually an external set of stimuli that's coming at you. Anxiety is an internal state and it's a threat response system that we have, which is usually it's linked to our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions, how we feel about something, how we think about something that somebody has either said or done to us, and then it carries on. So you can maintain the stress experience and that comes out as anxiety. Can you maintain in a stressful situation and thinking about the difference of it being internal and external, can you manage, is managing the internal part of it a big component of being able to get through that external stress that, you know, is maybe temporary? Absolutely. So external stresses are not always within our ability to control, right? blows through a stop sign, somebody calls you a name, somebody hits you when you're walking by, they push you or something like that. Or you have deadlines when it comes to work. I have deadlines. I have overwhelming responsibilities. I have too much data. If we <laughs> want to speak in terms of, I can talk about with your daughter, even like in the ABA field, like there's so much, right, that we're responsible to. And those are external stresses. Deciding how they can be managed, that's one set of skills, right? So I can have a day planner, I can have an organizer, I can like do a to-do list or a, a chart what I need to do. Like, so that's a way of managing maybe some external stress, but then the internal stress or anxiety, how I think about it, how I feel about it, how I maintain it, that's a whole other skill set as well. Not internalizing what other people's actions as a way of harming yourself. Like it's my fault. That's where all the stuff in, you know, therapy comes in that mentalistic view of shame and rage and anger and self-loathing and how you process it. So there, you can look at it behaviorally. Like there are two different systems working, right? Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm following. I'm, I'm deeply invested in what you're saying. <laughs> it's actually very interesting how having a behavioral background and then having a whole other skill set of the mental health, how they bridge together. It's crazy. Sometimes when I'm, you know, in the therapy room with my clients, I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, we could do this both an ABA approach or we could also do it, you know, a different way. You know, we can attack our feelings and our thoughts and how we deal with that, but it is such an advantage. I feel that I have this huge behavior analysis component. It's great. Yeah, Bobby, that, you know, for listeners who are not aware of the combination of your background, can you give a little, you know, synopsis of, of how you approach therapy? I know that you give you bring in the mindfulness, you know, ACT and ABA, but can you define for us what that looks like and how your practice is different? Well, I first, I have a background in ABA. I've, I've been practicing applied behavior analysis and studying it 
for 22 years. So it's been a long time. And then I experienced my own fatigue and burnout. And then I left the field. And so I transitioned into the mental health where that's where my master's degree is in, but I didn't actually begin practicing solely as a licensed counselor. So I'm in the process of becoming licensed for that. But stepping into that arena opened up a lot of doors as far as understanding a human and the human experience on deeper levels. And so <clears throat> during my training and my ongoing training, I have, I include trauma-informed practices because I'm a certified trauma professional as well. And then the mindfulness, because that's in my business name, but mindfulness, what's really great about that is it, if you want to narrow it down to the best way to, to describe mindfulness, it's about present moment awareness. Where am I in this moment? And then non-judgmentally observing what's going on. To me, that's very ABA. That's taking in measurable and observable data and then using principles of behavior change, isolating specific behaviors, you know, coming up with what is the estimated functions, coming up with consequent, you know, consequences or maintaining goals. And then you put these together and now you have such a unique combination of where you know, it's deeper into the cognitive behavior triangle where the CBT, have you heard of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have. Thoughts influence your behaviors, your behaviors influence the way you feel. And it just is like a triangle that they, in, they can flow to each other. But the funny thing is when I found a lot of CBT, when I was doing my research and my training and talking about it, they do not include as much ABA in the behavior component as you think of. So I feel like I have that unique advantage of talking about behaviors and clients. And when I'm working with the client and we go through, I must create like mini BIPs as, mm -hmm. you know, in the background of what we're doing. And I invite my clients if they want to, how they feel empowered enough to address their situation. Some people would like to just talk about their thoughts and their feelings, right? How that's showing up. Some clients really enjoy looking at their behavior because that is external. And so we talk about that, the functions of behavior, maintaining consequences, you know, explaining that to a client is so powerful. They love it. And then of course, introducing the mindfulness practices. And I use a lot of mindfulness for creating a sense of calm so that you're not overly reacting to thoughts or feelings that you're having. So I like to include all of them in the therapy session. So it's really unique. It's different. Yeah. Not everybody likes it, but you know. Yeah, it is. It is unique. And it's interesting that you say, and I know that we, we've talked before about an ACT conference that you had attended with mostly, I believe it was individuals that were not experienced in ABA. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. The behavioral health care field says behavioral health. But ABA doesn't have the position as if you were to go to an ABA conference and realize how many people practice and are so completely knowledgeable in just ABA. But if you take a step out and look in the whole field of psychology, even though ABA falls within psychology and learning principles, it is not a standalone in the mental health world or the psychology field at all. 
So yeah. it's almost like ABA has taken a sect of it and created an entire approach, which is validated and, you know, I'm not discrediting that at all. But when you go into the behavioral health and looking at psychology and the psychoanalysis, it doesn't have as, you know, the feet that it does on its own. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Let me repeat it back okay. so that I, I know I'm not missing it. Because what I'm, when you're talking and, and tell me if I'm off, but what I'm thinking is, is that the, the ABA is a science, right? And so okay. it gives structure where there may not be as much structure, maybe in the beginning of, of psychotherapy or, you know, it just lends to, lends itself to taking a scientific approach that is predictable and repeatable. Within that, there is, it's almost isolated and taking itself out of using other methods to approach situations or people and humans in a way. Is, is that... I feel like maybe I got lost. No, no, no. Okay. So I studied ABA before I practiced in mental health, right? Mm -hmm. So when I was used to ABA, it's this huge field, right? It's a, it is an in-depth study into verbal behavior and then conditioning. And so my application of ABA, I thought ABA was huge, right? Mm -hmm. In its scope in practice, but I was only practicing with developmental disabilities. And so when I transitioned and started to incorporate more mental health and I go into the mental health world and there, the sciences and all of psychotherapy is so broad as well. I realized that ABA wasn't as pronounced when you go into conferences or trainings with other practitioners that are doing you know, mental health counseling or psychoanalysis because ABA in the words applied behavior analysis isn't as big in that part, right? Because we, I think, and I, I I'm see. trying to figure out why and where a lot of it comes down to in counseling when we talk about, we're, we're dealing with the mentalistic, right? What people's thoughts are, what their feelings are. And then an ABA is all the measurable and observable, right? So it's, it's also related to the audience that we serve. If you look at the board, 72.22% of people who have, you, you know, registered on their site, where do you work? 72.22% are working with autism spectrum disorders, right? Or whatever comorbid diagnoses fall under ASD. So 72% of our population is isolated to this one population. Mm -hmm then, you know, a lot of things are left out. Not to say that's the only apical field, but that's the primary consumer of ABA. No, you're, you're right. And, you know, the interesting thing, I, you know, when I attended the ACT conference in Nevada, mm -hmm. you know, they always sell the, you know, the books and the workbooks. And as yeah. I was perusing, I noticed that my licensed clinical social worker that I see, her books were there. And she will you know, she will say she knows nothing about ABA and that she's never studied it to your point, you know, but she's actually doing it right. It's that mindfulness awareness of, well, watch yourself, just see if you see a pattern and it's, it's taking that internal audit. It's called other thing, not called ABA. Mm -hmm. There's social learning theory. There's several, I had just found a whole bunch of articles yesterday on what is it 
goodtherapy.com, but they have a lot of resources. And if you look up the history of not just, if you, if you type in behavior change or behavior modification, and then it comes up under the, the psychology sites, ABA is not listed as applied behavior analysis. It's listed under either radical behaviorisms and the origins of learning theory. But ABA as a standalone practice doesn't come up as much outside of gay. Yeah, that's interesting. And so when when you think about it, how do you think that we could improve or what do you think, you know, I guess you've noticed this. Is there any next step after noticing this to bring them together at all? Or is that necessary? I think it just depends on the person implementing, right? So as a practitioner, do you want, what field do you want to work in? What are the, what's the client base that you want to apply your, the extension of your knowledge and your experiences and your passions to? You know, when I discovered ABA 22 years ago, I didn't know that I was solely going to be trained to work with developmental disabilities. Not that I didn't like that, but that yeah. was just, this is the track that you're going to go to. And then I know it sounds silly and I'm not discrediting anybody, but I didn't hear about anybody using any other terminology besides the fancy ones that we use. And I went to SeaWorld. And the trainers there use a lot of our terminology. And I was like, wait, I know that word. Yeah. I know what it means. <laughs> and so then I was like, wait, other people are paying attention. But it hasn't moved as fast to generalize to many populations uh, beyond developmental disabilities, animal training, and then in the past 22 years that I've noticed, but I did have seen that there are some crossovers and they call it other things when you're working in like the public school system, like somebody's always going to have a take. Then relational frame theory then became acceptance and commitment therapy. And then there is a small sect of behavior analysts working with gerontology and dementia. So it's still a young science. I, there are avenues where people are moving towards but still, 72% of the consumers of ABA are developmental disabilities, autism spectrum disorder. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it's interesting because when I talk to my clients who come to me feeling stuck, we, we unpack that. And sometimes it's, to your point, they, they feel stuck in what do I do with this degree if I no longer want to work in the autism sector or, you know, individuals with, with different intellectual disabilities or other things. And what, what I find is sometimes it's just that they're getting back to like, you know, being burnt out. It's more of the environment than they're in, not the actual population that they're serving. But sometimes it's the fact that they, that that's not really their calling. And so we start to look at where else can ABA be applied and and really, it's the behavior of anything. And so it should be able to transfer. The skills should transfer over into other areas, such as, you know, I know OBM is a big thing that's popular right now, and people are trying to discover more about that's that. That's true. But yeah. And even in, even in the FBI, in the government, they are hiring behavior analysts to look at the behavior of terrorists. And 
to analyze that. So you can take ABA and just, yeah, and just unpack it. I have noticed it's who's going to pay for Mm. ABA services as well. But then in addition to that, if you just learn about ABA, there's still a lot of other skills if you're going to apply it to the psychology of terrorists and, you know, how gang behavior works. If you're going to work with the military or you're going to work with the police, like there's still, it's still an incomplete certification if you are going, but it's still an incomplete certification if you're going to work with developmental disabilities. Exactly. So our current audience, the demand of the current audience still, it doesn't prepare Anybody who, like an RBT, could be like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this anymore because I wasn't prepared for the audience that I'm working with. So, yeah, I think there's definitely room to take the amazing parts of ABA and apply it to other things. I still, I don't know how that's going to happen but you know we can't solve that problem all in one day yeah no but you you do bring up a good point and i think that at least having the conversations of what does it look like is there endorsements like there is in education because i do talk to individuals who just you know are newly minted bcbas and they've never worked with the population before but they they need a job but it's not for them So you're right. Like we need to do better for individuals who are entering into that. Yeah. I wrote in my, my CEU class about burnout is like one of the contributing factors is audience accuracy and it's not popular probably. I probably won't, I I don't know if I'll make any friends or fans when I say this, but the population of developmental disabilities is a huge range. And we're showing pictures. And I did the same thing too when I was a business owner. Like we want to show the little kids, two and three-year-olds and four-year-olds. But when I first started out, I worked in a group home with high behavioral issues in adult. And that's really hard to do. And so when you have a fresh RBT and they're like, oh, well, give me my cute little three and four-year-olds. And you're like, here you go. And then they're like, okay, well, what's next? Well, your three and four-year-olds becomes seven, eight, nine, 10, 17, 22, 25. And the scope of learning of the human, you know, scale, it changes. So if we're only picturing or showing images of the cute little toddler working, you know, with a therapist, that's not the primary consumer. That's an entry point for some consumers, but you might get a 13-year-old who has dangerous behaviors. And a lot of the times people get scared when they get hurt at work. And that's another stress. That's another factor of things that we don't always clearly advertise in our field about some of the populations. And you can even work with you know, outside of developmental disabilities and have dangerous clients or have not dangerous clients, but you have clients who exhibit dangerous behaviors. You know, we've all been hit, kicked, scratched, punched, but it would be nice to have a heads up, you know, that can be very stressful. Extremely stressful. And that's why, you know, in recruiting, when I train my recruiters, I've actually developed an assessment to talk about and make sure that, yeah, that we're talking about baseline. Like this is some of the things that you're going to see and listen for clues when somebody says, I 
I think I could do that. Or, you know, no, you, you don't, you, that's not an, I think, right. You can be trained maybe, but they're there. You have to trust the company that you work with is going to take care of them to hire somebody who's trainable in that way. But when's the last time you saw somebody get trained or advertised in any of the CEs working with clients who exhibit dangerous, challenging, and or very difficult behaviors? I mean, I've got situations where I was totally unprepared for a situation that would take place. And everybody's like, oh, you're the behavior analyst. So glad you're here. Here is your mm -hmm. clients. And you're like, okay, great. And then they, they isolate you in a space and you're like, all right, let's go work on our task. And the client throws or stabs you with a pencil. Like, I'm not mm -hmm. saying that to be funny. I'm saying that because yeah. that has happened, mm -hmm. you know, or you walk into somebody's house and you're, you're not prepared for the client attacks their parent or right. a client throws a chair at their sibling. You're like, wait a second. This was not on my intake. This was not something that I was prepared to do. Or my favorite one is when you have a tiny therapist mm. and a big client. I've mm -hmm. had therapists come back to me and be like, I can't work with that client. And I'm thinking, why? What happened? Okay, they're two feet taller than me and they outweigh me by 70 pounds. Like, that's a legitimate thing. Or clients calling and say, I need a male therapist. Well, I don't have a male therapist or I don't have a male therapist in your area because you have a 17-year-old who can't be around women or who it's not because they can't be. It's just, it's not physically capable that she implements a toileting procedure or a bathing procedure and they have, you know, SIB. Like, how how is this going to happen? So I really do feel like there are some external factors that as a field we don't discuss fully and accurately. That yeah. That's why a lot of people leave. Yeah. Can I get on your soapbox with you and make enemies? I, oh, yeah, yeah, I go. Okay. I, yeah. A few things. One, something that I'm concerned about is the fact that a, a lot of two things that you mentioned. One is that a lot of companies are recognizing, okay, we can't put people in a dangerous situation. So let's just not treat anybody who has dangerous behaviors or at least try not to. And, and that, yeah. that is. That in itself is heartbreaking. I understand the thought process behind it, but that's not the solution. The other piece of this is, and when I hear companies say, oh, we don't need safety care training or CPI or whatnot because we're not dealing with those behaviors, false, because those situations, it's not about being hands-on, it's about being hands-off. And so you need to learn to keep yourself safe and other people safe, but they yeah. want to cut corners there, right? So we don't need oh, yeah. to pay for all this training if we don't take these kids. But then they are actually put in these situations because you can't predict human behavior, you know, always. No, I've been hurt at work more times than, you know, I would want anybody else to be hurt. But there are sometimes you're taken by surprise, mm. you know, and then you've not only that, and this is where I wrote in the CE, compassion fatigue, because mm. you can be exposed to other people's trauma and it not directly happen to you. And that sucks, especially yeah. when you're a home therapist and you go and visit and you're not prepared for their quarters, 
uh, that they have socioeconomic status that you are not prepared for. I have walked into dirty homes. I have walked into hoarder homes. I have walked into places where the families live in desperate conditions and was not prepared for that. Mm. And at some point, it's not to say that we can't help that. It's just sometimes not a, we're not prepared for how that sets up in ourselves as therapists. We were witness other people's traumas. You're taking part in that. And that kind of has a residue that doesn't go away. Now, when I'm in the mental health counseling field, I know that people are going to come to me with maybe traumatic memories, trauma stories. In my experiences in the long time, like in the counseling room, I'm prepared for people to come in with trauma stories, trauma memories, trauma experiences, or difficulties. But young RBTs, maybe even a BCBA who just went and got schooling and hasn't really worked hands-on with clients, and you're going into the home setting, you can be exposed to other people's trauma and be completely unprepared and it affects you deeply. You know, in some cases where and it's out of your ability to control, right? So what if you've walked into a house and you see somebody who, like I said, is a hoarder and we're not here to, this isn't about a comment on the way they chose to live their lifestyle. That's fine because you're not there to address, but you are exposed to things that you're not prepared for. It could be that, it could be abuse, it could be neglect or what you think is abuse and neglect, but that's common to them, right? Maybe dirty homes, unkept, unclean. Maybe they don't have access to the same things that you do at, in your daily day life or their hardships. Being witness to that creates, you leave and you're like, what do I do with this? I was totally unprepared, for instance. And then I can use this. When I first started off in the field, I was just considered a behavior tech before they had RBTs. And I was given a case. And I said, you're going to work with this client. He small child, this isn't giving away any of his information, you know, he doesn't listen. He doesn't follow through. He's disrespectful to his parents. And the person that was giving me the case was like, what I suggest is you go in and do a token board and you teach them on, you know, behavior principles. Cool. I was like, yes, I got this. Well, I walked into the house and it wasn't a house. It was the shed converted to a house that the family lived in. And they had also taken into, so it was the mom, the stepfather. They had taken in siblings of her sister, and it was a total trauma case. They had just lost a baby. So they were, they were mourning the loss of a child. One of the, her niece that lived there was pregnant, young, 16 years old at the time, living in their shed. And the shed did have, didn't have access to running water. And it was a one-bedroom space. And they cooked on a stovetop. And I was supposed to come in and teach them about behavior principles and token charts. Right. Totally unprepared. I'm not saying that, that is, that's an extreme case. But it does happen when you walk into somebody's life and their home and their environment. And it is nothing like your training because you can't hold all those things constant. And then, you know, the same thing when you're working in a clinic, you know, parents come in, they may have lower economic status or they don't have access to reinforcers and you're required to use edibles or they don't understand the things that you're talking about. 
So being exposed to so many things as a therapist, we are not completely prepared for. So in your fatigue training, does it address mm -hmm. that? Yes. We talk about work-related trauma exposure and how compassion fatigue can wear you down. Because I wanted to make the case, especially when I did the FABA panel discussion, as well as this, is that ABA in itself, as a practitioner working with a specific population, you become a caregiver as well. You are not just there to do behavior change principles. Like you really do insert yourself in somebody's life. And that is huge, right? So yeah. you're a caregiver because you're taking responsibility in their outcomes because they have a set of conditions that prevents them from functioning in an environment that you want them to be successful, right? That's what we're doing yeah. with any age. Well, when you become responsible for their care or you take part in that plan, well, and they don't get better or you can't do all the things that you're supposed to do and your data and your BIPs only work so far, it's hard. It leaves something behind for the long-term practitioner. Yeah. And that's where I feel like compassion fatigue sets in when you've just been exposed so much and the outcomes don't move as fast as the science wants you to, I should say the science wants you to, but you believe in ABA, you believe in the principles of behavior change and they make sense, right? But then when you actually apply them to somebody's life and it doesn't turn out as fast or as quick as possible, it does something. Well, so it's interesting when you're saying that I'm thinking you're us as practitioners, providers, when we go in, we have our own set of behaviors, our own set of environments and experience. And I wonder if, what would it look like if we also had a plan for the therapist and for the individuals going in, both a, a care plan for them as well to be able to manage their environment and their own behaviors. I'm just also no. thinking that it's set up against practitioners and this is why, because the parts of the treatment plan. So I practice before insurance and then I practice after insurance. How do you have a lot of experience doing treatment planning and actually doing the insurance? None at all. Nope. Okay. So. The treatment planning process to be reimbursed from insurance is part of the contributing factor of why I feel that therapists burn out. And I can explain to you why. Because the parts of the behavior plan, or excuse me, the treatment plan. So who are you responsible to? This is a question that we could get into. Like we could spend all day talking about who are we responsible to? Who is the client? Is it the payer? Is it the insurance company? Who are we responsible to? Are we responsible to the client, the child that we're working with? What about the family? So, you know, identifying who the therapist is responsible for is a really good starting point. So, you know, you would think that as the, the ABA person, you're responsible to the clients, right? But your company that you work for is responsible to not only the parent, the client, and the insurance company. So there's three layers of responsibility. Or if you include the employees, right? Being able to like cancellation and all of that. Yeah. Exactly. And at the end of the day, everybody needs their paycheck, right? So mm -hmm. the company, 
need to get paid so that they can play their employer so that the cycle can continue to go. So if you have the insurance template that you are trying to be reimbursed for, it is insane how many hoops you have to jump through to get your authorization and then maintain your authorization. So when we're talking about who's responsible for what and why we're set up to be fatigued is because there's a stress, that stress of all the parts of the insurance authorization. You have to prove medical necessity. You have to do all the assessments. Then you have to, to collect all the data. You're responsible for parent training. And then you have to graph it, show it back. And you have to show progress enough to keep the authorization, but you can't show too much uh, progress because you don't want to titrate if you haven't hit all your targets. So these stresses are sometimes so great that nobody knows who's responsible for what. And as a previous business owner and practitioner myself, I don't know where one begins and one ends. So when we're talking about how do we actually overcome the stress, so first of all, who's responsible for what? And it can be very challenging because you love the science of ABA. You love behavior change principles because they are true and effective, but you can't be true and effective when you have so many things coming at you. Hmm. So Bobby, you just hit the nail on the head. And what's interesting is that, so I do a lot of research and, and surveys. And what I noticed is a lot of people mention caseload hours, right? And burnout. And okay. they, they kind of put those together. And, and that is that is true to a point. But what's interesting is that's something that people are very vocal about. But in my surveys, it actually shows that people are burning out or leaving because of not having enough admin support or workflows or constant changing and wasting time on, on, on things. And so when listening to what you're, what you're saying, is a lot of what you just mentioned are all things that are many things that are outside of our control. So the external, yeah. but the internal within an organization of a company does have the ability to set up workflows or processes that are clear, consistent, and you know who the owner is of what. And that is causing burnout and that is within the control of the company to invest in. So I think that you, you just tied you just tied it in a nice bow for me. I was missing that piece. And so yeah, I mean, I, I think that makes sense. What do you think about and, and sorry, it, I don't wanna like if you had anything else to add, I don't wanna cut you well, off. No. We, we could talk about it for like hours. <laughs> I know. It's so interesting. I love it. So, but I, I do wanna go back to something that you kind of touched upon for BTs and your experience in the beginning. What advice do you have for companies or, I guess this is a two-part question. Part one is, what advice do you have when taking into consideration staffing? Do you advise that people throw individuals into the deep end and they learn how to swim? Or that there is uh, competencies and badges or something to identify who is a good fit for a certain learner? Well, I'm also else. thinking about the company who having a good how do i say this in the most professional way you don't you just say it okay okay first of all the company should and take this lightly with the shoulds um identify be clear about the audience that they're serving first right 
So are you going to be an early intervention in clinic service provider? Cool. Are you going to be a community-based, I'm going to your home, I'm going to your school. If you can be more specific or at least have avenues or diversification within your company, but be clear about who, the who, the what, the where, the why. If you're going to be a big company that throws a broad net that says, we're going to serve anybody, well, then that's a little bit different than saying, okay, well, we're just going to serve three and four-year-olds at the clinic here, right? So then you can get more specific. And it's almost like creating a topography, a profile of the population you serve. And if you're going to serve a diverse population, then you can advertise and train for a diverse therapist. But if you're going to specialize, then that's where you put your emphasis. So if this is who I'm going to serve, then this is how I'm going to train. And this is how I'm going to walk it out. And this is how I'm going to support those people. But the waters get muddy when we're doing all the things and you don't know what you're doing or where you're going or how do I train this person to do this thing. If we're in a clinic and I have three and four-year-olds, well, my supervisor is on site. I can go ask. We can talk about the things that come up with three and four-year-olds in a controlled setting. If I'm going to say, we're going to go to high school in all of Seminole or Orange County, well, okay, well, I don't have access to my supervisor except for 5% of the time. And so what are my responsibilities to whom, at where, and in, what am I really walking into? So we have to be careful, I think, as both people who employ and people who want to be employed about the structure of our job responsibilities, because it's not just, oh, I'm an ABA practitioner. I had this great science and I know all these cool things, but I don't know how to apply them because I don't know where I am best suited. So yeah. it, it needs to be more than just one conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was great advice. It needs to be specialized. And when I was listening to you talk, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is, is that you, there is no cookie cutter approach. You can put things in the categories and break it down, but you still have to define what it means to be able to do X or what that looks like so that you can, so, you know, back to the recruiters or even the, the job seeker, they can make an educated decision on what's best for, you know, staffing purposes. But without that knowledge, I mean, they're kind of in the dark too. Well, yeah, because you have, well, the lifespan of a person has many different layers, right? So three and four-year-olds play. You're working on play skills. You're working on manding and, you know, following directions and, you know, receptive language, expressive language. You're working on very specific things. You may be working on toilet training. But then when you go into a public high school and you're working with a 17-year-old, you're not working on play skills, right? You're not, you know, your, your intraverbals are much different. You know, your day-to-day following directions are different. Same thing when you go into somebody's house. You know, we want so much for our therapy to apply to so many people because it is a very unique, special, gifted set of skills. But it doesn't apply all the time to every single person when you're working in 
very specific situations with a treatment plan that tells you what you can and cannot work on, right? Yeah. Is it in medical necessity? Because you're always having to do that. Am I with, am I doing social interaction skills? Am I doing social communication skills? Have I generalized it, but I don't have opportunities to generalize it? What if there's a behavior problem? What if there's something new comes up? Can I bill for this? Can I write a note on this? Mom's not doing the treatment plan. Mom's doesn't understand, or dad isn't participating in parent training. Oh, by the way, you have to coordinate care with PT, OT, and speech. And PT, OT, and speech don't care about your ABA. Like, it's just, we have an opportunity to have conversations to get ahead of it. I just don't think that there's enough time being spent. How do we combat some of these things rather than just keeping up with it? But yeah, it's more than just one person yeah. to, to see that there's a lot of gaps. Yeah. That's why I got burnt out. I was totally, I couldn't take any of it. I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. You're not alone. I mean, look at, look at the numbers. You're not alone. And you know, we can solve it. And I think that you are by looking at the antecedent of identifying what it is that causes the burnout for the individual. What does it look like for them? You know, I'm trying at the other end, helping job seekers is self-care. What does it mean? Does that mean that you yeah. need weekends off or does that mean that you don't? Does that mean that you need to work somewhere that doesn't, you know, message you past five well, or does that, you know, so it looks different. Do you need a flexible schedule or do you, or do you need somebody to control your schedule? So, you know, people need, um, in general, we all need to take a step back and ask ourselves, what do I need down to defining it? Like if you're going on a date, what is important to you? What are deal breakers? Yeah. I talked about that in the second half of objective five in the burnout thing is talking about the differences between, and this is pulling a little bit from ACT, managing, understanding, knowing, creating a list of the differences between your short-term reinforcers and your long-term reinforcers, you know, short-term Reinforcers are the immediate things, recognizing when you're stressed, what's going on, who's around me, where am I at, and then including some mindfulness activities to like get calm, to get organized, to figure out what's coming, where am I coming or going. And then also, in addition to that, understanding what your long-term values are. What are my long-term goals? What am I working towards in the big picture? So being able to know you know, I say that with quotation marks, know what your, your reinforcers are, but it, it is true. Having identified what can I do immediately and reminding what am I working towards? Like they go hand in hand and it's about juggling those as well. Yeah. Bobby, if you don't mind, I, if there is a, um, exercise that you recommend for individuals to to be able to do perhaps in the car or when you're in session, I don't know why I just said car. I'm, I'm picturing somebody closing their eyes and meditating in the car and do not do that, but you don't know, do do that. You, <laughs> don't do that. But do you, can you share with us one of your exercises that you talk about? Oh, my favorite, favorite, favorite thing is intentional breathing practices. Um, we, we automatically breathe, of course in and out all day long. And that's necessary. Your body's just doing that in the background to keep you alive. So there's two parts to, and this is something in the mental health field we talk about, you know, like your, your automatic nervous system is the thing that we have that's taking care of us in the back. So you have two parts basically to your nervous system. You have your sympathetic and your parasympathetic. 
And so they work to keep you safe, right? So if you can imagine a seesaw and on one end is your sympathetic nervous system and on the other end of the seesaw is your para and they move up and down, right? So it basically is your threat detection system. Your body, your brain will sense a threat or a stress all the time, right? And so when a stress is present, your sympathetic nervous system kicks on. Sometimes this is automatic, you know, fight, fight, freeze, or fawn comes up. So when you experience an external stress or even a thought stress, which is your anxiety, you can activate that sympathetic nervous system, which is why am I alert, right? My heart is racing. I'm clenching my teeth. My stomach hurts. I have a headache. And it's not related to, you know, not having enough water or being tired. So you have this threat system. So your sympathetic nervous system is on. And it's really hard to process, learn, and take in new information when you are activated or online. So you want to kick in your parasympathetic, which is your rest and digest. This is a great place when you can get yourself organized. I think I said that word before. You're organized. You're present. You. This is the mindfulness. This is that present moment awareness, not just disassociating or zoning out because it's too overwhelming. Intentional breathing is a fantastic way of bringing yourself to the moment and calming down. So there are many, many, many exercises for intentional breathing. A couple of quick ones are triangle breath, which is you imagine like you're drawing a triangle. So you breathe in for three, you hold for three, you exhale for three. So it's in one, two, three hold two, three, exhale two, three. So you can almost like breathe and imagine that you're drawing a triangle. There's box breathing, which is the four, four, and four, four. You hold for four, you breathe in for four, you hold for four, you exhale for four. So it's like an intentional box. Those are good ones that can start you off immediately. You can just do really deep all the way down to the bottom of your belly breathing where you breathe it all the way in. Another one is diaphragmatic breathing, but sometimes they ask that you lay down where you put your hand on your diaphragm and you try to expand it all the way out as possible. But you can find which one works for you. And I can send you a link to, I have a toolbox that's a free download and it includes like seven to eight different types of breathing exercises. They are Hi. fantastic. Um, I Thank use them with you. my kid, use them with myself all the things in clients all the time. It's a really good way of getting you present in this moment so that you can assess the situation and deal with either an external or an internal threat. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I will put that in the show notes okay. and so everybody can access that as well when you're not thriving. And then, yeah, absolutely. And then in terms of, I know that you left the field, do you have one piece of advice for someone who's thinking of the field? And I wanted to find that for just a second, you know, especially based on what we've been talking about, because it's a good point. And we do need to do a better job of saying leaving the autism sector or leaving the field yeah. of ABA, because it is, you know, while it's 77%, 77.2% or whatever statistic that was, it is a large number, but there's other things you can do with that. So what advice do you have for someone thinking of leaving 
whatever sector they're in, I guess, of ABA? I think it really depends on where they're at in their academic career. So if you're at the beginning and you're an RBT because you only have to be a high school graduate and you haven't taken the next step, I would say that you should definitely do an analysis of what you like, what you don't like, like really inventory. Instead of just experiencing the stress, what can you learn from it? So it could be something like, okay, well, I know that I liked working with kids. I didn't like working with their parents. You know, I did, I like traveling I or I didn't like going from place to place to place. So what pieces of your experience can you pull valuable, useful information from? And then measure that against, am I going to go forward in the human services field or I'm not? And then if you're a BCABA, you have your associates or your bachelor's degree, do the same thing. And, you know, when you get up to your master's and your doctorate level, you may have limited abilities to transfer unless you want to go back to school. But there are resources. I've looked a couple of, there's some really good Facebook groups that people have asked, I'm at this level of certification and I don't know what else to do. So there, I have seen other people post that, oh, I'm doing this now. Give me a call or a private message and I'll send you some information. I think there's avenues for us, but really analyzing for useful information. What do you like? What you don't like? And applying that. I love the mental health field. Love it. It's so great for just never ending information. There's so many applications. So my interest now, not just now, but the focus of one of my clientele is self-injury. So having the ABA experience, I mean, SIB was a part of the majority of my VIPs, right? So in the mental health sector, they don't call it just SIB. They call it self-focused body, repetitious body behaviors. There's non-suicidal self-harm. So I have clients that experience those things and using the behavior information and applying it is really awesome. It's yeah. very interesting. I think that we're going to have to have a part two because I, I'm very interested because I, I don't know if you've done any research or if you've noticed this. I'm curious because I, I think that when people are burnt out or have that high state of anxiety all the time, it's, it's almost like counter control to engage in self-injurious behaviors such as, you know, overeating or cutting or whatever behaviors, you know, you want to define as self-injurious. So it's interesting to me because I think that what you're doing is so important. I love the fact that you're you're bridging the two two worlds that you love together and then not stopping there, but then helping others who experience what you experience that you hope you can help others not have to to just accept that that is the way that the world is. You're giving them tools. And I think that I'm excited to see what else you uncover. Oh, we can do a full session about non-suicidal self-injury and body-focused repetitious behaviors. It is the literature that supports it outside of ABA has, there, it's so diverse. It's great. But then again, taking what I know about actual learning theory and operant learning and applying it, it's, you know, using some of the things that I don't get, I haven't got to use in a while, which are like 
chaining and task analysis and understanding the functions of the behavior and like the consequences, like it's just a whole other level. It's really, it's interesting, but it's such a great bridge to both because also with my clients, I'm able to access their mental events. Like they're able to say, you know, tell me, recall in a way that I can't, I wasn't able to access when I was working with developmental disabilities. Like, okay, well you engage in SIB, you know, and we could just do it from the measurable and observable aspect. So this next layer is, it's intriguing. Yeah. You know, okay, this is the last thing I'm going to say, I promise. But it's interesting because you just mentioned, so my, typically I work very well with kids who are either non-vocal or have some sort of perseveration or, or OCD type tendencies. Mm-hmm. And I don't do well with verbal aggression. But what I noticed was that when I give them a dialogue, so to speak, to sort of regulate themselves and explain what's going on in the situation, and I guess bring them to an awareness of the present that I didn't know I was doing, there is a major decrease in harmful behavior. But it's interesting. I have a client, I won't share any PHI either, but they still, it's been 10 years, they still to this day do a dialogue. They they do it out loud. It's that they haven't learned to have an inward bubble. And to be honest, I haven't either. So they will talk themselves through a situation. And that's not always a, a behavior that's taught is to is to have self-communication. So one of the one of the clients that I worked with recently, we unpacked the the self-focused body, the repetitious behavior. We addressed the SIB from a sensory approach. And then we built a task analysis and tried and did a habit reversal to back it out because this client was not comfortable with discussing feelings. And it's not to say like, I'm going to force my client to discuss with me how they feel about things. But it just wasn't where they were at. So we decided to go from an external, and maybe we'll get to the internal state, but we talked about the sensory component. Where does this, where do you, where is the sensory reinforcement coming from? And then we built up, we built a task analysis that matched the sensory. And then there was a whole chain of behaviors that went along with the self-injury. And so we worked it like data. We worked the data through and it was so good. It was so good because this client benefited from taking the behavioral approach. Okay, well, that made sense to that person versus going, well, if I feel shame, embarrassment, I don't know what to do with it. Like Mm. we could never find a commonality point of going, okay, well, how do we counterbalance that? So we addressed it from a different approach and it, it seemed to be effective. So I would like, this is really cool. It's actually very brilliant. I, I really like that, especially for people who struggle with the definition of emotions and identifying it accurately. You might not get a good picture, but behavior, you get a better, you know, the task analysis. That was brilliant. It was fun. I'm presenting it to a group of mental health practitioners, I think in April, about behavior and behavior healthcare as it applies to non-suicidal self-injury. So I'll be sure to like, after I present that, I'll put it into a CEO. So, but it'd be good, but I'm presenting on it. So it's fun. Well, we'll have you back on in April. We'll talk to you and and see how it went and, and learn more about it. I would love that. 
So anything else you want to add on burnout, you know, combating compassion fatigue before we switch to the fast five? I think there's a lot of aspects of ways that people have in their own control to take inventory on their stress. So here's what it is. If you're in the behavior analytic field, you can use behavior analysis to your benefit in addressing your own stress, your own anxiety, and your own fatigue so that you don't have burnout or you become where you need to, you need to leave something that you are good at. So I definitely think if we can like shift a little bit of that mindset of using your skill set and applying it to yourself, you have much more control than you actually think you do. What's one area before we, we make that switch, one area that you would say to, and I'm going to stutter because I, I have many thoughts in my head. Um, is it boundaries? Is, is it as simple as starting there and defining what your boundaries are to protect yourself? Boundaries are not simple. Mm, tell me. I'm going to give you a QR code for a download that I have about creating boundaries. You know why boundaries are not easy? No. Because most people don't know what they are until they've been crossed. Mm. So, right? You don't yeah. know that a boundary has been violated until somebody steps across it and then you're irritated. But then usually what happens is you hold it against the other person rather than self-reflect, okay, okay, well, this is actually in my ability to control what I find. But you can create your own boundaries, but most people, nobody tells you how. How do you create a boundary? Well, first you have to know what ticks you off. And that goes back to inventory yourself. Wow. So many good treats that we're going to have in, in the notes. So yeah. awesome. Well, thank you, okay. Bobby. Um, fast yeah. five. Okay. What advice, okay. what advice from a mentor do you still use? Oh, my favorite one is never work harder than your client is willing to work. That has saved me in so many counseling sessions so that I don't get frustrated that the client doesn't want what I want, but it doesn't matter what I want. So I don't work harder than my client is willing to work. I love that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. What is an unpopular pop culture opinion that you hold? That emotions aren't as influential as you think they are. I don't, let me rephrase that. So emotional responding can be made useful if you learn to go beyond just feeling it and experiencing it. So not yeah. making decisions based on emotionals or emotional responses. I'm, I'm a big, huge proponent for emotional control. So mm -hmm. they're valuable tools, but they aren't the thing that you should just act upon. Next topic. I could dive into that as well. And that's going to have me staying up at night. I know it is. Yeah. And I will probably message you and say, okay, yeah. is this what you think? Um, yeah, no, I think that's that's pretty profound and I'd like to unpack that, but I know we're, we're coming up on time and I want to respect that yeah. for you. Um, dang it. Uh, we, we need to tease out all of, all of Bobby's thoughts. Yeah, another one. <laughs> um, we have a whole one about emotions and boundaries next, right? I would love that. I think that's so key and important and something that not a lot of people talk about, which is interesting because we've all been told not to be emotional or to you know, do for others, be people pleasers. And so it is so needed. I'm not saying that you just shouldn't have your emotions. Right. I'm just saying 
you use them as a tool mm -hmm. rather than letting them use you. Yeah. Because everybody's so quick about, well, this is what I feel. Yeah. Honestly, in the world, nobody really cares about how you feel. You need to be able to take your emotions and process them and make them useful so that you are a useful person, so that you mm -hmm. can come in contact with your long-term goals. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, okay. And if you could only engage in one self, this is going to be hard for you, one self-care practice daily, what would that be? Meditation. Meditation. Not as hard as I thought. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because um, in that moment, meditation, it doesn't have to be like 30 minutes. It could just be, I include intentional breathing in mine. I'm so... But I have a whole process that I do for my meditative thing, but every day. Okay. Hopefully you will bring that. Bobby will be attending the ABA Staffing Summit in <laughs> August, and she's working on what workshop she'll do. But you definitely want to stay tuned to that. As you can tell, she has so much to offer everyone. So what is one thing that you've learned to add or subtract in a busy week? Self-criticism. Yeah. I don't use self-criticism without conscious planning for my advantage. And that means I don't sit and spend too much time in the woulda, shoulda, couldas rather than what is useful about the things that I didn't get done. Yeah. That's I'm wasting time. I don't need to be like, you know, spending, I mean, yes, there's all, everybody self-loathes and has a moment where there's like, this sucks, but it's then taking it and making it useful. Yeah. So wise. I love that. Very wise. Do you prefer to make plans or do you prefer to be spontaneous? Depends on who I'm with because not everybody is an SD for a good time. So can I just tell you, I need that on a t-shirt or a mug. <laughs> you got to know your audience. Oh my gosh, Bobby. I'm totally stealing that. That's so true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You got to know, you got to know that you have the right SDs around you for a good time. You absolutely do. For sure. Yeah. Totally stealing that. Well, where can people find you, Bobby? How, how can they get a hold of you and your brilliant mind? Hopefully in my website, once it, I'm converting it to a new website provider, but it's mindfulcounselingsl.com. I am not a consistent, reliable social media user. I would like to say, I mean, I do have the things. I have Facebook, LinkedIn. You're so good about LinkedIn and I'm not. I have all of those, but my website and emailing me is probably the very best things to do. So that's also mindfulcounselingfl at Gmail. But those are, because they're there. I can't keep up with social media. It's just too much. You know, I go You're back. You're good about it. I see you all the time on LinkedIn. Well, it's my job. It's a lot. It's, it's a lot. lot. I do take, I take breaks, um, but it is reinforcing for me in the sense that when you disappear on LinkedIn or Facebook, there's constant, well, actually I just, I guess I, I don't, I'm not on Facebook as much. I'm totally going to stutter on this for a second. With LinkedIn, if you disappear, your audience disappears and you have to work that much harder to get them to see you again. And so sometimes that that is to my detriment where I 
should probably take more breaks from LinkedIn than I do. But I hopefully I'm putting out content that helps others too. But yeah, it doesn't stop. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so wow. thank you for joining me, Bobby. I hope to have Bobby. you on again. I enjoy yeah. you and I appreciate you coming thank on the you. Pod. I appreciate your audience and listening. That was nice going yeah. off on a couple of the things. I hope you find it useful. But I think that there were so many nuggets of wisdom sprinkled throughout. And I think it's probably going to be a podcast that people come back to, to listen to again. You're like a good movie that just needs to be rewatched.